You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're in the book of Nehemiah. And you can make your way there. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that John just mentioned a second ago, uh, Nehemiah 6, the end of it, and then through Nehemiah 7, that'll be on page 402 uh, and then into 403. Don't be too intimidated by the number of verses listed there. Uh, I'm not actually going to read every single one of those today. We're going to have to do a little bit of skipping around, but that's the text that we're going we're gonna to try to cover uh, in our time together this morning. Uh, a couple weeks ago, at uh, our staff meeting, our church staff meeting, uh, Paige, who is our family ministries director, uh, she shared what has since become an instantly favorite quote of mine, and I think of our whole team. Uh, and I, if I was trying to remember the specifics of the circumstances, but if I'm remembering right, um, we were together celebrating uh, the new year and that we had done all of this work and planning and preparation to get the fall kicked off, uh, everything from Bible studies to the fall ministry kickoff, um, to the volunteer schedules that, that make the fall happen here, but then had this instant realization, celebrating all of that, instantly realizing how much more, there wor- more work there was to do uh, in September and October and November and December and then the year 2020 and all these things coming, coming down the road, even that you're seeing on this slide that was up there a second ago, the events coming up. And somewhere in the midst of that, Paige said, well, you know, Being an adult is basically just saying it'll slow down next week for the rest of your life. (laughs) It'll slow down next week and saying that for the rest of your life. Is that not true? Is that not true? We finish one meeting and we immediately have to schedule two more to follow up from things that came up in that meeting. Uh, We finish one house project And in the process of doing that house project, we either create by our own mistakes or discover five others. It's fall right now, and and in the fall, nothing makes this more obvious than the futility of leaf removal. You pull out your leaf blower, your rake, whatever your preference is there, you do all this work, and then one gust of wind dumps a whole new batch, and you've got to do it all over again. Life on this earth is the experience of both completion and incompletion. Finished and unfinished work. And in any given moment of our lives, if we pause to reflect, uh, we will be able to see that there is much that's been done. We'll be able to look back and, and celebrate and rejoice in much that's been done and see so much more that is left to do. In the end of Nehemiah chapter 6 and then all of Nehemiah chapter 7, it offers us a moment like that. As we'll read, the wall and the gates are built. So so this great work that Nehemiah and the people have set out to accomplish, it's now completed. And it's remarkable. It strikes fear into the heart of the enemy nations that surround Jerusalem. It compels awe and astonishment of God. And then, seconds later, it becomes obvious how much more work remains. That there's still a lot of internal opposition And not to mention that that the whole point of this work was not simply rebuilt walls and gates, but a place where the people of God could actually live as the people of God. If you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, 
Now, it's likely that your familiarity ends in chapter 6, verse 16, when the walls and the gates are completed. But really, this is only the halfway point of this book. And spoiler alert, uh, when the book does end in chapter 13, which we'll get to a few weeks down the road, though Nehemiah will have led through many reforms, Jerusalem is far from utopia when this book comes to a close. And so to all of you who feel the constant spiral of completion and incompletion, of waiting for things to slow down this next week and waiting for that for the rest of your life, find camaraderie in the work and the story in the life of Nehemiah. And even more, find camaraderie, find yourself immersed in the story of the world the story of the kingdom of God and God's redemption. He has done great things and we are filled with joy, the psalmist says. But things are not yet the way that they're meant to be. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. And I'll read through the first several verses of verse 7 and then a few selections from the rest of chapter 7. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, uh, and the, gatekeepers the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some from their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt." Verse 5, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Bana. I'm going to skip down through a couple of these verses. There's lots of lists of names and numbers, as you'll see there, and we'll come back to explain a little bit more of why that's there. But notice just in, in passing the different categories of people than that Nehemiah lists. Right there in verse 7, the men of the people of Israel. So there's lay people in Israel. And then skip ahead to Verse 39, there's the priests. And skip to verse 43, there's the Levites. And then skip to verse 46, the temple servants. And then skip down to 57, the sons of Solomon's servants. 
And then in verse 61 and following, which it explains more in verse 64, uh, there's a group of people who seek their registration uh, among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it says there in 64, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Now picking it up here in verse 66 and reading through the end of the chapter. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 dereks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' households, uh, yep, some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury to, of the work 20,000 dereks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 dereks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. O Lord, you have given us your word, the psalmist says, as a lamp to guide our path, to shine upon our path. Help us now to meditate on your word and to follow its teaching, that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, Three things for us to consider in light of this text. The completed work, the incomplete work, and the story of the world. The completed work, the incomplete work, and the story of the world. So first, the completed work. Verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. So 52 days. Okay, just to put that in perspective... 52 days ago from today was August 29th. What were you doing August 29th? And can you imagine starting a project of this scope with no modern technology or machinery and then finishing that up today? Can you imagine that? (coughs) Excuse me. You guys um, live in Pennsylvania, so you know how bad the roads are here? I'm pretty sure PennDOT, even with modern machinery, could not complete this project in 52 years, let alone 52 days. It's incredible uh, what Nehemiah and the, the people of Jerusalem here are able to accomplish. Remember, it's only been nine months since Nehemiah first received the news about the condition of the city and the people of Jerusalem. And it took him three months from that point to share that with the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, and get the blessing, get the permission, the letters to go from Persia to the province of Judah and begin the work. It would have taken him close to two months to travel the the nearly thousand miles that it was between Persia and Jerusalem. And with all of that, with all the prayer, the planning, the preparations, all the opposition that they faced that's tried to slow them down, it's still only been nine months between the summons and the completion. And the enemies notice that, and it makes them even more afraid. 
And so if you remember back, if you were with us in chapter 4, the prayer that Nehemiah prayed in chapter 4, that God would turn their taunt back on them, back on their own heads. That's now come to pass. So these enemies sought to make Nehemiah and Jerusalem afraid, but in the end, they are the ones who have become afraid. And what's more, all the recruitment that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem did, inciting all of the people and the nations around Judah, around Jerusalem, to oppose the work, uh, spreading rumors via an open letter like we looked at last week. In the end, that serves only to increase the audience to the work of God through his people. These enemies are not only, as one scholar put it, helpless spectators of events they don't approve. In the end, they become inadvertent evangelists. They, be, they gather people around to witness the power of God. Notice, too, it is not awe and astonishment and fear of Nehemiah. They don't step back and go, what a leader. What a cooperative effort. What a project these people finished. Instead, look again at the second half of verse 16. They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Oh, that God would grant that our successes, that in our accomplishments, people would not see us, but would see the hand of God. We are prone to, by nature, cry out in our failures and in our sorrows. How about our joys and our successes? We certainly remember, remember God and cry out to him in desperation. When, when the desperation reaches a boiling point, when the work is incomplete, will we likewise remember in moments of celebration? Will it also be apparent that God is the one who brings the completion? And there's a huge contrast here which the original hearers of the book would have immediately recognized. Uh, we read in the book of Daniel chapter 4 that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon the one who conquered Judah, who destroyed Jerusalem and began this exile about 150 years earlier. Nebuchadnezzar one day stood on the roof of his palace and he sang a song of praise to himself. He said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And if you know the story, immediately God humbles him. He's driven insane. And he lives outside, eating grass. And his hair and his nails grow long like the feathers and claws of a bird. And he remains that way until he recognizes and acknowledges that it is God and not Nebuchadnezzar who rules the world. Now, Jerusalem at this point is nowhere near as majestic as Babylon was in its heyday. But this also is an opportunity where Nehemiah might choose to exalt himself. Or maybe even more passively, simply to let the record point to his own leadership and his own planning and his own execution, where the praise for all of this finished work might terminate on him. But instead, as he's been writing throughout this book, this is the good hand of God. That's been his perspective while the work was incomplete. That's the truth that Nehemiah has been sowing constantly for at least these last 52 days and probably longer. So now when the work is complete, it's obvious to everyone, ally and enemy, leader and laborer alike, this is the work of God. Let's use this as an opportunity to consider our own lives and our own labors. Do they point to us or do they point to God? 
An author named James Hamilton puts it this way. He says, we don't want to be people who do things that can be explained away by ordinary human effort. We don't want the world to look at what we've done and say, well, anybody with financial means, market savvy, cultural sensitivity could pull that off. We don't want that. We want people, Hamilton writes, looking at our church, at our efforts, and saying only God could bring those people together. I knew some of those people before. Only God could make them as loving as they are now. Only God can do this. Where in our lives is it obvious that God has done something infinitely beyond our abilities and our efforts? Wherever you perceive that about your own life, pause and celebrate it and proclaim it. Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. There are entire psalms that recount line by line the great works of God among his people. And I tell you what, if you think that some songs that we might sing together in church are too repetitive, that we sing the chorus one too many times, you are not going to like Psalm 136. You're not going to like it. You can't get more than seven or eight words into that psalm without the refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. You can't get more than a few words into that psalm before the refrain is pointing to the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God. Why not? Because God's people can't, by nature, by definition, God's people can't stop proclaiming God's great works. Like the apostles Peter and John centuries later, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard, what God has done. If you find yourself this morning struggling to come up with examples of how God has worked, infinitely beyond your abilities, your efforts. Look to texts like Psalm 136. Because really, as God's people in this time and place, that's your story too. That's part of our story. And beyond that, I would invite you even to consider the existence of this church. This church is not the product of human effort and ability. And, and no one is more aware of that than I am. It is painfully obvious, and I say painfully because in the last eight years of leading here, it's been painful to see how ill-equipped and ill-deserving and incompetent I am but for the grace of God. But together, we have become part of a great work of God, a local expression of what Scripture calls the body of Christ. And a group that through us, God's work through us, has brought new life to some, renewal in grace to many, Genuine friendships, tangible service and blessing to this region. Why? Because we had a good plan and we worked hard? Well, certainly that's been part of the means. Many of you have labored hard in the work of, of being part of this church. But ultimately, all of these things and anything that we will get to be a part of, that's accomplished not by our efforts and our labors. That's accomplished by the good hand of God upon us. And God willing, in days to come, we will see even more obvious examples of things that happen in us and through us that the people that we live and work and play among will observe and will immediately perceive this is the hand of God. This could not be something they just pulled off on, on their own. So would you pray that way for our church? Would you pray that for the Horvaths and the rest of the core team at Liberty Lebanon? Would you pray that for the Zellers and the people in Redeemer Dubai? Would you pray that for the churches and the leaders that David and Deborah Miller have been ministering among this past year in Southeast Asia? For all of our local and global partners in ministries of mercy? 
And also, pray that for your own life. Pray that for your own life, that your life would point ultimately not to you, but to the God who has done great things. Second, let's talk about the incomplete work. If that's the completed work, let's talk about the incomplete work. Now, we've made it through two of like 80 verses. Um, so we'll go a little faster through like the rest of it, I promise. Notice here how quickly the sense of completion gives way to the realization of all that remains incomplete. For one thing, there's still internal opposition really tied in among the people there. So Tobiah, who we've met throughout this book, is one of the enemies, the, the opposers of this work. He has deep ties with the Jewish nobles through marriages, through business perhaps, whatever the specifics, it says that some of them are bound by an oath to him. And so what do they do when the walls are complete? They vouch for Tobiah to Nehemiah. They say, hey, I know he's been our enemy and everything. I know he's hired a false prophet to trip you up, to discredit you, to make the work stop. I know he's partnered together with Sanballat and Geshem, and they've rallied the surrounding nations to try and discourage his work from ever happening. But he's not such a bad guy. He's not such a bad guy. They can't stop the walls now. They can't stop the gates. What they can do, what they're trying to do, is to dissuade Nehemiah from continuing the necessary reforms, to continue to make him afraid, to weaken his leadership and the work that there still remains to do. So that's one aspect of what's incomplete. Another is the, the need to appoint both proactive and protective roles among the people of Jerusalem. So protectively, there's still a need for guards. Uh, there's still a need for appropriate precautions. Uh, we trust God, but we also lock our doors at night. We trust God, but we also have smoke detectors and fire extinguishers in our homes. My daughter, who went, who's in preschool, reminded me of how important that was during their fire safety day a week or so ago. Nehemiah trusts God for protection. He still stations guards for Jerusalem, and he creates stipulations for, for when the gates should be opened and closed and how that should be done. And then proactively, he appoints people who are not only skilled, but faithful. People who fear God, people of character, like Hanani and Hananiah. The civic management of an entire city requires a lot more than the building project. It's not just those who build. Now you've got you've to actually care for and manage the people that are part of that city. And so more leaders are needed to oversee different aspects of that. And then Nehemiah sets about another huge task, which is reorganizing and repopulating the city of Jerusalem. As we read there in chapter 7, verse 66, counting the male and female servants, there are about 50,000 people in and around Jerusalem. But we read earlier in that chapter, in verse 4 of chapter 7, that compared to the size of the city, that's not very many people. Now that the walls and gates are complete, there's a huge need to build and to rebuild houses so that more people can live in the city. And this is what prompts, really, the vast majority of what's written here in chapter 7, the vast majority of the text. It's a list of all the people who came out of exile in Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah. A little tangent about this. Lists of names and numbers, I'm sure, are not your favorite parts of Scripture when you read them. Uh, they, they are, for me as well, some of the most difficult parts of the Bible to read. And they probably, that's not just because of the pronunciation, by the way, although that's a huge part of that. They probably seem dry and unimportant when you read them. 
And that's especially going to be the case if the primary question when we read Scripture is, how does this apply to me? If our primary question when we, when we read the Bible is, how does this apply to me, lists like this, you're going to have a really hard time figuring that out. Instead, when you read texts like this, when you read any text of Scripture, first ask yourself, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about his nature and his character and his work in the world? And what it teaches us here, among other things, is that God is one who knows us by name, who values us by name. He is committed. He is a God who is committed to know who his people are. And the people of God are not this amorphous, ambiguous, faceless, nameless crowd of people. They are people, individuals that comprise a group of people. They are individuals made in his image, loved by him, redeemed by him, known by him. Moreover, think about it this way. What if these names were of your family members and your friends? What if these names were of your people? For the original audience, that would have been the case. And so Nehemiah, reading this list, is a little bit like listening to God read from the book of life in heaven someday. You're straining your ears to hear, is, is my name there? Is the name of my father or grandfather, is the name of my family, my people included? And a few things to make note of. This, this is a nearly identical list here in Nehemiah 7 to the one we find in Ezra chapter 2. There's some different numbers, different order, different spellings, a few omissions and additions. And that could be the result of either updates to the numbers and people that have happened in the years between, uh, maybe a slightly different criteria for how people were grouped, or uh, copyist and transmission errors. We're not exactly sure. But the vast majority of those lists are absolutely identical. It serves really as a testament to the historicity, to the historical fact uh, of these two accounts. Moreover, the motive for Nehemiah reading this genealogy, the motive for this census is a pure motive. We read in 1 Chronicles 21, years earlier, King David took a census. But when King David took a census, his motive was to know how the people of Israel compared numerically to the size of the surrounding enemy nations. He wanted some external evidence that would help him obey God. He wanted to bolster his his confidence that God had told him to do something that actually could be done. It's fear-based when David does it. And as the chronicler puts it very starkly, it was actually Satan tempting David to be faithless, to turn away from God and be faithless in sin. But what's the motive here when Nehemiah takes this census, when he reads this genealogy? It's to preserve the purity of life and the purity of worship for the people of God. And we'll get into this more in the weeks and the chapters to come. But the people of God are called to be a holy people, a set-apart people. And so in the day, in this day, when worship was enmeshed with your nationality, that was the case in the 5th century B.C., when worship was enmeshed with your nationality, your identity and your family's lineage matter deeply. And marrying people from other nations who worship other gods would compromise your loyalties, would compromise your devotion. So again, there's going to be some to unpack in the next few weeks about the continuity and the discontinuity of how we think about identity, nationality, marriage, in light of Jesus' finished work. There's important considerations to bring into that in light of what Jesus has done. But for today, 
For chapter 7 of Nehemiah, recognize this. If the point of rebuilding Jerusalem is to create a place for the people of God, then that place should be filled with the people of God. With people who both in identity and practice are pursuing a life of faithfulness to him. Not those that are turning away from him or want nothing to do with him. As we read, this genealogy includes some different groups. So there's the the lay people of Jerusalem, listed either by descendant or by their town. There are priests who would be descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. There are Levites, uh, descendants of Levi, the tribe of Levi. The the priests come from among them, but the Levites are are broader than that. And they assist the priests in the temple. Uh, There are the singers, who are a group of Levites who assist specifically in temple worship. There are the gatekeepers, which are Levites that comprise a sort of temple staff, And there are temple servants who assist the Levites. If you read that list closely and carefully, it includes people who have names that are not Jewish, that are not Hebrew names. So it includes people from other nations who have since become worshipers of God. And there are servants of Solomon, which we're not exactly sure who those people are, but they seem to be similar to temple servants. People then that can't prove their identity, take note of this as well, they're not kicked to the curb. They're not kicked to the curb, but great care and caution is taken not to include them in the genealogy and especially to not put them in a position of leading the worship of God's people. They wait, they have to wait until God can reveal the truth through this ancient practice among the Israelites that was called the Urim and the Thummim. It was a a casting of lots of sort that God would use to reveal uh, his truth when the truth was not known. And then as we keep reading, There's not only administrative needs, there's financial needs. And so the heads of families give, and Nehemiah himself, the governor, gives, and the people give. And collectively, according to the best estimates we have, more than five million in today's dollars are provided as a kind of endowment for the service of the priests and the Levites and all the servants of the temple for temple worship. All that to say this, repopulating and reorganizing Jerusalem And the people of God there is a huge task. And as we read it here, it is a huge, incomplete work. And in many ways, we'll read in the coming chapters, now the work gets harder. As one scholar summed it up, now that Nehemiah has successfully built the wall, rebuilt the wall, he has to turn his attention to the hearts of people, which is a much more difficult building project. He has to confront sin within the congregation. And as any of us who work with people know, really as all of us know from our own lives and our own relationships, it is infinitely harder to shape a heart, to shape a heart that has been, and rebuild a heart that has been broken down by sin, by rebellion, than it is to rebuild a wall. Infinitely harder to shape a heart than it is to shape a wall. As a pastor, I have never in my life more appreciated mowing my lawn. You know why? Because in 45 minutes, it's done, and I can see the results of it. And the same thing here, as hard as this work was to build a wall, I bet you Nehemiah says at the end of his life, I'll take a wall any day of the week, as opposed to caring for the hearts of the people of Jerusalem and all the, the years that follow the wall being rebuilt. Infinitely harder to shape a heart than it is to, to build a wall. So third and finally, let's talk about the story of the world. 
We're given here in this text a picture of completion and incompletion. Substantial, amazing, miraculous work that has been done. And substantial, difficult, costly work which remains undone. And in that, Nehemiah 6 and 7 point to the story of the world. They point to the triumph of the kingdom of God. And as we reflect on that today, what's already complete? What's already done? For those of us who live 2,500 years after Nehemiah, we not only have this account, we not only have Psalm 136 and all the Old Testament, we also get to look back on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Taking on flesh to dwell among us living a life perfectly obedient to the standards of God, dying as a sacrifice, as a substitute in our place, rising from the dead to conquer Satan's sin and death. Salvation has been, past tense, accomplished in Jesus. And from the cross, Jesus cries out what? It is finished. And yet, the same Jesus in Revelation says, I am making all things new. There's work yet to be done. In the kingdom of God, there is the already and there is the not yet. And we see this echoed over and over again in the experience of God's people on earth. Among other things, we might describe our lives as the in-between wilderness experience, just like the Israelites experienced many years ago. Freed from slavery in Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Completed work that God had done to set them free from 400 years of slavery. But not yet in the promised land. Or here in Nehemiah, out of exile in Babylon. Great work that God has done. But not yet with a restored, reformed Jerusalem. In every generation, the experience of life for the people of God is one of both completion and incompletion. No wonder this life is so hard. No wonder we are weary. No wonder being an adult is just saying it'll slow down next week and saying that for the rest of your life. As God's people, we are those who must constantly cry out for God to rise up and to act on our behalf, to come again to complete the work that he has begun. We desperately need his Holy Spirit to work in us and through us in ways that only he can. At the same time, at the same time, no wonder this life is such a grace. And consider this this morning. Just as the kingdom of God is complete and incomplete, so is the grace of God. And here's what I mean by that. By faith in the finished work of Jesus, all of the grace of God is already yours. It's already yours in Christ. And so apostles like Paul and Peter can write things like, you lack nothing. You have absolutely everything you need in this life because you've been united with the risen Jesus. And yet, in a way that defies my comprehension and logic, though all of God's grace is already yours, in Ephesians 2, Paul writes that in the coming ages, God will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. In other words, it will take the rest of eternity for God to lavish the fullness of his grace upon you and upon me. We are weak and broken. We are rebellious and riddled with sin. The world, it says in Romans 8, groans under the weight of sin's corruption. 
But as we heard in the words of encouragement today, God will bring to completion the good work that he has begun. The one who called us is faithful. He will surely do it. We wait in the wilderness, but by the grace of God, we will make it home. And so church, remember and rejoice in the completed work of God, all that he has accomplished in Jesus. And long for and labor in the work of God's kingdom that remains yet incomplete, all that Jesus will do as he reconciles the world to himself as he makes all things new. And today, today, and each day in this wilderness between completion and incompletion, as one more day of eternity provides an opportunity for God to lavish even more of his grace on you. May the grace that is already yours in Jesus Christ establish you and sustain you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord God, you have given us such a gift in the glorious gospel of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant that we would perceive it, believe it deeply in our hearts, recognize all that you have done, all that you have completed, and long for all that you will do, all that is yet incomplete. Grant that as we joyfully receive this good news for ourselves, that we might gratefully share it with others, and that in all of it we might always give glory to you, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, by whose grace alone we are what we are. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.